Amen. We'll go ahead and open back up to Mark chapter 6, because we're starting a brand new series this morning called Conquering Codependency. And Mark 6 is all about rejection and how to deal with rejection and how to handle rejection. And so this, this portion of scripture has like tremendous applicability, whatever, it's got a lot of application to our life, okay? So I want to begin our series by asking you this, how many of you struggle with pleasing people? How many of you struggle with worrying about how you're perceived? Let's see how many are honest this morning, okay? Okay, yeah. Peer pressure, codependency, people pleasing, these are all things that affect us at some level in our everyday lives. And uh, I was reminded recently just how much I struggle with people pleasing and desiring people's approval, and it came out in a really interesting way because I recently got a tattoo, okay? In fact, I got two tattoos. And um, growing up, I always wanted to get a tattoo, but my parents wouldn't let me. And when I was 18, I wanted to get a big tattoo of an E on my arm here because that was my nickname in high school. It was E, just the letter E for Eckert. And so I wanted to get a tattoo, and my mom was like, no way. And so I sort of suppressed that desire, and since the law always provokes its opposite, here I am at 39, and I decided to go and get a tattoo because I've always wanted to get a tattoo, and I got two, just for good measure, right? And I made sure, since I'm a pastor, I didn't get any edgy tattoos, you know, I didn't get Garfield smoking a cigarette on my calf or anything, you know. I, uh, I got spiritual tattoos, you know, so scripture and doves and all kinds of stuff like that. I was very careful. Um, and when I got my tattoos, I was very proud of them. I mean, I showed them off to everybody, friends, neighbors, you know, I'm in Chick-fil-A and I'm like stretching my arms out like, yeah, what, I got tats, you know. <laughs> I'm just, I'm so proud of them. Like, no shame at all. And so I proudly like displayed my tattoos to everyone in my life except for two very important people. Yeah, yeah, my mom and dad, right? So yes, I'm a grown man who's married with three children and I'm still afraid of my mother. If that's your heart, come see me after the service. I know a good therapist, okay? Seriously, seriously, come, come talk to me. Because I was terrified. How are my mom and dad going to receive this of what I've done? And it was funny, I avoided the conversation about my tats until it was absolutely necessary. And it, it came about in a really funny way because my dad had to drag it out of me finally. So my dad, you know, we're talking on the phone. He's like, you know, when are you going to bring your boys down for a swim? We haven't seen you guys in like two weeks. And so I'm like, you know, dad, I just, I just can't swim right now. You know, I just can't. And he goes, why? What's wrong? What happened to you? And I was like, because I recently got a tattoo and I'm not supposed to get it wet, you know? And there was like this brief pause on the phone, you know? And he's like, you got a tattoo? He said, why, why in the world did you do that, you know? I said, well, you know, it was just really cool, and I just really wanted to get one, and da-da-da-da-da, and, you know. So he goes, well, he goes, all right. He goes, well, bring, bring the kids down anyway. He said, Lauren can take them for a swim. And I said, Dad, I said, actually, Lauren got a tattoo, too. <laughs> yeah, Seriously. And, and, and so she did. She got a little hard on her ankle. And, uh, uh, and so, my, like, there was another brief pause. And, like, literally, I, I'm picturing my dad looking at my mom and, like, honey, what happened? You know, our son and his wife have tattoos. You know, what do we do wrong? It, it's kind of, I'm picturing this, like, dreaded scenario. And it's funny because when my mom got on the phone, I'm like, mom, you don't understand. It's a really cool tattoo. It's Jesus' name in Aramaic. And she goes, she didn't miss a beat. Moms don't miss a beat. She goes, honey, I'm glad it's cool. She's like, but if it's so cool, couldn't you just put it on the front of your Bible or something? Did you have to like permanently mark your skin, you know? 
And I wrote that down because, you know, I'll say the same thing to my kids. You know, I will. <laughs> it's all legalism when you're growing up. But when you become a parent, you're like, that's a pretty good idea, you know. <laughs> it's just keeping it real, right? Everything's legalistic until you have your own kids. And you're like, that's actually wisdom there, you know. Um, but she didn't. Amen, right? You never stop being a parent, ever. But this is sort of the reaction we have to rejection. If we feel like someone's going to disapprove of us, we tend to avoid them. We tend to stay away from them. And the reason is, is because we naturally fear being rejected. We naturally fear uh, getting into situations where we know someone's going to say something that's critical or somewhat critiquing uh, of our behavior. And that's our sort of natural response to rejection. And this is true in all of life. I mean, uh, if we believe someone's going to give us negative feedback, or if it's even worse than that, if someone says something that emotionally wounds us, <laughs> we ain't never going near that person again usually. Seriously. And if we have to work in the same office or we share a church, we just keep it sort of surfacey and superficial. And so when we pass by them, we're like, hey, what's up? Nothing, which means none of your business, bro, you know? When they ask you, how's it going, we're like, it's going good, which again means code for none of your business. I'm not telling you anything else because you hurt me. That's naturally the way that we process conflict and rejection. We tend to want to avoid situations where we're going to get negative feedback. And what's interesting is that the fear of rejection can also cause us to go to the opposite extreme as well. Fear of rejection doesn't just cause us to avoid people. It can also cause us to do the opposite and become a people pleaser. So fearing rejection can actually cause us to become an approval junkie. And instead of running away from a person, we actually redouble our efforts and try even more to please that particular person. We fear rejection so much. You know, one of my favorite preachers is a guy named Paul Tripp. He tells this story once about uh, this elder in his church sat him down for lunch and gave him some negative feedback about his preaching and was like, listen, dude, your preaching is like unbiblical and it's not easy to follow and da-da-da-da-da-da. And, and basically, he just like straightened Paul Tripp out. And so Paul Tripp said when he got up to preach the next Sunday, he said everyone in the room's head was the same size except for this one elder's head. He said his, his head was like twice as big. You know, it took up half the room. And Tripp said this. He said, I found myself trying to preach to appease one particular person. And so, like, when he would write a sermon, he would be like, this is going to nail this guy and get him. And he said it went on like that for a few weeks. And he said, after one of his sermons, this old lady pulled him aside and said this. She said, I don't know what's happened to you or who has gotten into your head, but you need to snap out of it or we're all in big trouble. Tripp said this. He said, this man's criticism and my fear of his rejection actually turned me into a people pleaser. Everything in my life now revolved around pleasing this one man. And this rings true in all of life. Because fearing rejection can turn us into an approval junkie. You know, and that's why it's been said that rejection breeds obsession. Rejection breeds obsession. Proverbs 18, 14 says, A man's spirit will endure in sickness, but a crushed spirit, who can bear that? If we feel crushed and worthless and inadequate, we can't go on like that. If someone says something to us that's absolutely devastating and we feel rejected, you can't just go on. 
And so some people respond to that rejection and that crushing spirit. They respond by becoming an approval junkie and they redouble their efforts and they try everything they can to appease people and gain their approval. Because rejection will breed obsession. You know, I learned this principle um, from a young age because I watched daytime television. You know, my, my parents didn't have cable when I was growing up. Um, and it wasn't because we were sheltered or anything. It was just because we couldn't afford it. And so I had to watch, like, all the really terrible talk time, you know, daytime talk shows when I was sick and I had to stay home from school. So I had to watch, like, Springer and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I didn't grow up in a Christian home. So I just watched what was ever on 2, 6, and 9, I think it was, you know. And, and so... I would watch the Jenny Jones show, and uh, the Jenny Jones show would every once in a while have this, um, this particular theme on their show where this dweeb or, like, nerd in high school would, like, grow up to become, like, this uber, like, professional or, like, ripped out of their mind, like, superstar, okay? And the name of the show was called From Geek to Chic, you know? And what they would do is they would bring a bully out on the stage first and they would say to the bully, you know, hey, you went to such and such high school. Yeah, I did. You know, do you remember Jeff Eckert? And they would show a picture of Jeff Eckert, you know. I don't have a slide there. I'm sorry about that, Kurt. But they would say, do you, know, do you remember Jeff Eckert? And they would show a picture of this guy with, like, you know, braces and wiry hair. And, you know, um, he'd say, yeah, yeah, I remember that guy. And they'd say this. They'd say, well, that was Jeff Eckert, now, uh, you know, before. Check him out now. And, like, the guy would come out just, like, jacked. Like, the last 20 years, he's been working out, and he's just, like, ripped out of his mind. And um, he'd come out and, like, jump in the bully's face, and he'd be like, look at me now, punk, yeah, what? And it was like sort of like the movie Central Intelligence with The Rock, you know? Remember, he goes from dweeb to chic, you know? And that was the situation. And there was all this aggression and hostility, and, and what would happen is Jenny Jones would sit them both down in the show, and, and the dweeb would pour their heart out and say, listen, you did this to me, and you said this about me, and you hurt me here, here, and here. And it was an amazing show because at some point, the bully would, like, get remorseful and be like, listen, I'm, I'm sorry, I had no idea the way that that came across, and I was an idiot, and I was immature, and I'm sorry I did that to you, and what would happen, inevitably, there'd be this part where the dweeb would, like, just melt, like, this, this CEO of a supermarket chain, this totally professional person would just melt, and you'd be like, you realized at that moment, the reason that this dude has worked out for 20 years and has 2% body fat is because this bully's voice has been in their head for the last 20 years playing over and over and over and over again. Because rejection will breed obsession. And the minute they, they, they secured that, I'm sorry, I receive you, I accept you, the minute they receive that, if you could see them the next week, they're probably popping Krispy Kreme, dude. They're probably ain't going back to the gym at all. Because they have what they want. They've gained what they've been desperately seeking all of their lives. That rejection by that bully bred in them an obsession to succeed at all costs. And you know, deep down inside, how many of us are 12 or 13-year-old people struggling and striving to get our yearbook signed by someone? If we were honest this morning, how many of us live our lives that way? We are prone to strive for success, to be the best we can be in our field, not so much for the glory of God, but because we're trying to cover over inadequacies, you know. I think so often in life, we believe that our successes define us. They don't. It's our failures. The reason you are the way you are today, the reason you have your personality, the way you come across to others, is not because of the things that, have, that are good that have happened to you in life. It's because of the, the rejections you've experienced in life. That has molded who you are as a person. Your hurts, your pain, 
the things you have gone through that are difficult have made you into the person that you are this very day. Because rejection so often will breed obsession in us. And so there are two fundamental ways that people respond to a fear of rejection. Okay? They either avoid people or they go about trying to please people. Or if, if I could use a graphic here, they turn people into either obstacles or vehicles. You view people as obstacles, I've got to hurl you, I've got to get away from you so that I can matter, so I can feel better about myself. I'm going to overcome my crushed spirit by getting as far from you as I can. That's one way we turn people into obstacles. The other way is we turn them into vehicles. I'm going to use you to feel better about myself. You're a vehicle I'm going to jump into and ride for a little bit. And so I'm going to do whatever I can to secure your approval. I'm going to use you to feel better about myself. We turn people because of our fear of rejection into either obstacles or vehicles. And that's because everyone lives by a very simple formula, and it's this. My self-worth equals my performance plus your approval. This is the default mode of human life. My identity comes from my production plus my approval from society. We all naturally live by that formula. And this is the reason why when your 17-year-old daughter got pregnant, there was a part of you that felt like it died. She came home and she said, my boyfriend got me pregnant. And there was, there was a death that took place in your soul as you thought about the damage that would be done to your reputation. Especially in church circles. You know, when your son came home and said, you know, dad, mom, I'm gay. You didn't sleep for two weeks. And the reason you didn't sleep primarily is because homosexuality is something that the Bible forbids. That's not the reason you didn't sleep. The reason you didn't sleep is because you thought to yourself, I wonder what in the world people are going to say about me and my wife and the way you parent. I wonder what in the world they're going to say we did to our kids to make them grow up and do this. This formula explains so much about our lives that my self-worth comes from my performance, my parenting, plus your approval of my parenting or whatever it is. I mean, this formula explains why recent studies tell us that Facebook users, listen, Facebook is actually really bad for your health. It actually, studies have shown Facebook is linked with bitterness and depression because people log on to Facebook and they fall into social media comparison. And so they log on, they see all your likes and all your posts and all your comments and they look at their own profile and they don't have as many likes, they don't have as many comments, they don't have as many thumbs up. And what happens is they log off feeling frustrated, rejected, and insignificant. Facebook has been proven to evoke depression and bitterness in people. And the question, question's why? Is Facebook evil? No. It's just a tool. The reason it gets, it, it gets like perverted and turned into something that's so destructive is because we all live by the formula that my self-worth comes from my productivity, my reputation, my popularity, plus your approval. And the Bible has a technical term for this, okay? The Bible has a technical term for this. It's called the fear of man, okay? Whenever I use the term codependency in this series or peer pressure or people-pleasing, I'm just talking about what the Bible calls the fear of man. There's nothing new under the sun. Ed Welch has said this. He said, the fear of man goes by many different names. Codependency, peer pressure, people-pleasing. 
But here's the deal. Fear of man means we give other people the power to tell us, okay, what to feel, think, and do. Fear of man. Codependency happens when too much of your sense of validation and security comes from somebody else. Codependency occurs when an excessive amount of emotional, physical, or psychological reliance comes upon another person not named God. That's how codependency happens. And listen, this formula of, you know, my self-worth equals my performance plus your approval, this formula feels so right to us. It does. It's our default mode. It feels so right, but the Proverbs warn us, it actually leads to death. That's what it leads. Listen to this. Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord will be kept safe. Listen, that's a terrible picture I know. That's the best picture I could find of a snare online. Snare is kind of an older concept, uh, but it's a bird there, and you got a snare set up with a little treat in the middle, and it looks appealing. It looks like this is the way to go. But what happens, though, is that the fear of man will end up leading to um, bondage, slavery, and death. And the Bible warns us that codependency is a snare that will rob you of joy and freedom and happiness in your life. Now, I know some people are thinking this. They're thinking, is, is codependency really that bad? <laughs> Do we really have to have an entire four-part series on codependency? You know, does the Bible really have to warn me about just, you know, seeking for people's approval or feeling a little bitter when I log off Facebook? I would say yes. I would say yes. The reason the Bible warns us about codependency is because, listen, it will wreak havoc not only in your life, it will wreak havoc in every person that surrounds you and is close to you. It will spill out onto your closest relationships, codependency will. Let me give you a practical example here, okay? And it's from my own married life. And I've asked my wife, Lauren, permission to use this, so I'm not speaking out of school here. My wife and I, you know, we desperately want to be used. And so when we make mistakes, we want to be transparent and humble uh, because we want to have a ministry of helping other people. And so I I love my wife. I appreciate her. She gave me permission to use this, okay? But, but, But about a month ago, maybe a month and a half, she was driving home one night from her parents' house. She'd had dinner over there. And uh, she calls me, and she's like, very first words out of her mouth were, were this, honey, we got to buy a new dining room table. And so I'm like, okay, can we talk about this? Let's discuss this. And, and basically, I could tell pretty quick she wasn't going to back down, you know? <laughs> she's like, we need to get a new dining room table, like, immediately, okay? Because our dining room table now is, it's old, it's too small, all our kids can't fit around it, we can't eat together as a family, we need a bigger one. Which, listen, we could fit around it, but in her mind, we needed a bigger one, a better one. And I'm like, honey, we don't have that kind of money right now, okay? Down the road, we'll pray about it and see what God provides, but we, we just can't get there right now. She was not backing down, though. And she got more and more stern. And uh, basically, it was 9 p.m., I was tired, I got in the flesh, and we got into a scrum, okay? We got into a scrum on the phone, we got into a fight, which is a scrum, it's just a biblical word for a fight, you know, I just used the word scrum. Take the edge off a little bit, our pastor fights with his wife, <laughs> You know, we got into a scrum, and it was one of those conversations that doesn't end with an I love you. It ends with I'll see you when I get home, and then click. That's a big difference there, isn't it? You know, it wasn't those lovey-dovey conversations where it's like, I love you, and then each person waits for the other one to hang up first, you know? Remember those? You just kind of, I love you, and you wait, and you just listen for the person. You're like, you hang up. No, you hang up, you know? No, you, I love you so much. You know what I'm saying? Like, you just... It, wasn't, it was like, I'll see when I get home, click, Darth Vader's coming, 
you know? It's like the spaceship flies in, you just know it's going to be bad, you know? So she gets home. I had time to, to, like, to like downshift and process, and very, very first thing I, I said, honey, I'm sorry. I got in the flesh. Please forgive me for fighting with you. Will you forgive me? Now, what's going on? What happened? That's my next question. Why are you so adamant about us getting a new dining room table? And she said, because we really need to teach our kids manners and table manners and you know, we don't sit with our family enough, at, you know, to, around the table or whatever. And I'm thinking, okay, what the heck happened tonight? And so I asked her, I said, honey, did something happen at your parents' house? Right? And she goes, well, yeah. And it turns out, she went on to explain that during dinner, one of my children, just one, who shall remain nameless, but if you work in the nursery, you know exactly who it is, okay? <laughs> was like tossing spaghetti and garlic bread all over the place, and she was embarrassed. It made her feel embarrassed. And so um, my wife determined she was never going to feel humiliated like that again. And so she's driving home. She feels crushed in spirit, and who can bear that? And so her solution is this, for us to find a table on Craigslist that very night, send me out at midnight with cash in hand, okay, to get shot, okay, so that she can, so that she can buoy up a little bit of her identity, She wants to replace a little bit of her dignity, okay, at whatever cost to anyone that gets in her way. Now, listen, what's behind all that? Deep down inside, she's finding her identity, her self-worth, and what her parents think about her parenting. This codependency. And at a fundamental heart level, she felt like for me to matter, I have to have their approval. My kids have to be in order. Thou shalt not spill any spaghetti on thy table, right, was the law she was living by. And that's why Proverbs 29 warns us, fear of man is a snare. And listen, the Bible, written 3,000 years ago, just as relevant today as it was then, it speaks to all matters of life and godliness, okay? Your Bible is like your smartphone. You may not know how to use everything in it, but it's there. And I know some people are like, codependency, where is that in Mark 6? It's all over the Bible. It's all over the Bible, what you worship and what you live for will spill out onto people in your life. And codependency won't just jack up you, it will jack up your family. And so if you're codependent, guess what? Everyone in your life is going to get sucked into your codependency. Everyone will. I know we like to think of families as like lunchables, and each member of the family is hermetically sealed off and kept separate from everyone else's, you know, idolatry. And we think, you've got an idol over there, and here's my idol. Listen, your idols spill out on everyone. It's like a to-go order. Shake it up. It's everyone's idols are spilling out on each other. And so that means this. If you fall into a people avoidance and you develop a, you know, a Ted Kaczynski complex and you become the Unabomber and you get away from people, that's going to affect your family. They're going to wonder why in the world we can't go outside. Why in the world is everyone evil? Or if you fall into a people-pleasing you know, mode and you, become, you develop this Messiah complex, your family is going to want to know why you're never home. Why is dad never here? Your idols will spill out and destroy your life. And that's why Proverbs warns us, because the Bible wants to help us. The fear of man will be a snare. It's that serious. Codependency not only destroys you, it will destroy your family. Now, that was all introduction for the series, okay? We just had to get that out of the way. I have to give you a reason to come back, okay? That was our introduction, because here's the question, right? This is why you came this morning. Is there a way to overcome codependency? Way to conquer it. 
Is there a way that I can live my life and truly love people instead of treating them like obstacles or vehicles? And the answer is yes. And Mark chapter 6 is all about it. It's all about it. Because there is a way to overcome codependency. Jesus begins this morning by showing us the way. Because Jesus knows a thing or two about rejection, doesn't he? Let's pick it up in verse 1. Check this out. Mark 6, verse 1. He went away from there, and he came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. Now, let's pump the brakes for a second, okay? Um, just to kind of like give you a background context here, because we parachuted in. Um, a year earlier, Jesus was in his hometown of Nazareth, and it didn't go very well. I mean, he was in this same town, his own hometown, a year earlier, and uh, he stood up in the synagogue and read from the Old Testament, okay, the first half of the Bible. He read from it, and he read a portion of Scripture about the Messiah, and he said, I am him. And what happened is, it wasn't received very well. And what happened is this, Luke 4, they heard these things, all in the synagogue were mad, filled with rage, they rose up, took him to the edge of the town on a cliff and tried to kill him, okay? This is what happened one year earlier when Jesus was in Nazareth. And so here's the deal. A year earlier, Jesus preached in his home church and they tried to kill him because they didn't like the sermon is basically what happened. And what's amazing is this. This blows me away. Jesus comes right back to Nazareth. No fear. And look at verse 2 because he does the exact same thing. It's Groundhog Day. Look at verse 2. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James, and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Underline, highlight, circle that word, took offense. It's a very important word. It's the exact opposite of the word to believe in. The people in Jesus' hometown didn't believe he was the Messiah. They rejected him. Jesus is rejected by the people who know him the best. Just think about that for a second. The people that were the closest to him rejected him. And they said, this guy can't be the Messiah because he's just a lowly carpenter. I mean, this guy, he just laid the linoleum in my kitchen a couple years ago. They know what this guy's got, okay? God does not lay tile. He's going to come, and he's going to rule, and he's going to be a king, it's going to be amazing. This is not the Messiah. And so they stumbled over the fact that he was a lowly carpenter, and they also stumbled over his pedigree. They stumbled over his family past, you know, because in verse 5, look in verse 5 again, they called Jesus the son of Mary, which basically, that's a cheap shot. That's a cheap shot. You know, in Judaism, you refer to a person by their father's name, you know, Simon, son of John, the sons of Zebedee, right? Son of David, etc. Solomon was the son of David. But here, they called Jesus the son of Mary, which was basically taking a cheap shot at his mama. In other words, people are saying this, who knows who his dad really is? That's what they said in John chapter 6. 
Pharisees got all mad, and when you get mad, you don't actually reason facts. You just become emotional and just lash out, and you're like, the Pharisees, they get dogged. They get beat up from Scripture, and they're like, well, at least we weren't born of fornication. At least we know who our dad is, Jesus. And so the people in his hometown say, yeah, Mary's going around saying an angel saw her and gave her this child, but you know what? We, we, we've heard other things. You know, I knew Mary in high school, and she was a lot different than she was now. You know, I, she's, you know, you know, Virgin Mary or whatever, St. Mary now. I knew her in high school. She wasn't like that. This is the word on the street in Jesus' hometown. And so basically, they're calling him illegitimate, and the Messiah is not going to come from an illegitimate line. And so Jesus is rejected for the second time, not by complete strangers, but by the people who were the closest to him. It doesn't get any more personal than this. The kids he grew up playing Little League and T-ball with are the ones that are trying to kill him now and don't believe in him and think he's a blasphemer. Just, just let that soak in for a second. You know, this type of rejection could have been devastating to Jesus. It could have been because it was so personal and so intimate and so close. And uh, here's the thing. Jesus didn't take offense at their rejection. If you look at verse 5 again, look at verse 5, it says he actually healed a few people. And then verse 6 says he went into the surrounding cities and he preached the gospel to them and he shared the good news. It's like their rejection of him, like it didn't even phase him. It didn't even phase him. And that, that amazes me because, listen, if I'm the Messiah and you reject me, I ain't preaching the gospel to you. I ain't laying hands on you and healing your psoriasis. Ain't, no, I'm going to drop some gold bond on you and say, peace out. I mean, I'm just going to leave town. I'm not down for preaching the gospel to you and healing you if you reject me. Jesus Christ, though, God in the flesh, was rejected by those who knew him the best, and it didn't even phase him. And in our text, we find great hope for how we can also overcome the fear of rejection and codependency. Because Jesus loved people, he didn't need to use people to feel better about himself. And the question is this, what was his secret? And someone says this, the Bible thumper usually, well, Jesus was God and he was perfect and therefore he never sinned and he always obeyed perfectly. Fair enough, okay? Of course Jesus was God and I get that. But I think sometimes we pull the God card out too quick and we forget that Jesus was also man. You know, Jesus had two natures, right? Just a little FOF here, right? Final moments of the faith. Jesus had two natures, 100% God, 100% man. Or you could say it this way. Jesus was no more God than he was man, and he was also no more man than he was God. He was 100% God and 100% man. Two natures, one body. I can't understand it. So we've got to be careful we don't pull the God card out and just flash that too quickly. Because Jesus had to pray through trials and trust God through his trials just like we do. He didn't go into the, the wilderness and be tempted by Satan. He was like, just, you know, check this out, y'all. I'm just going to dominate this. Yeah, that was not his attitude. He had to trust God and pray through things in his life just like we do. He experienced real temptation just like we do. In fact, we know that's the case because in Hebrews it says this. He's got a high priest who can empathize with us, right? Because he's been what? Tempted in every way, just as we are, yet didn't sin. 
these were real temptations. You know, one of my favorite preachers is a guy named Artazerdia. And uh, he said once, someone was asking him a question, you know, how much did Jesus know about whether he could sin or whether he couldn't sin and blah, blah, blah. And, 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 and Art gave the best answer that I've heard. He said this, Jesus was God and therefore he could never sin. But since Jesus was a human, he didn't quite know that. He still had to pray and trust God through everything he went through. He didn't go into it thinking, I got this, I don't have to pray. He went through every single temptation. It was a legitimate temptation that had to be prayed about. And fasting sometimes, we see that in the Bible. And so Jesus was 100% human. We can't forget that because this rejection could have been devastating. This was a temptation for Jesus to fall into codependency and the fear of man. And therefore, I believe this text has very practical implications for all of us because Jesus was rejected and he never ended up treating people like obstacles to be avoided or vehicles to be used. He never did that. And so here's the question. What was the secret? How was he able to overcome rejection? Well, the answer is in verse 4. He reminds himself of his God-given identity. This is so important, okay? Jesus says this. This is the only words he speaks, okay? A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, among his relatives and his household. It's like their words about him, their declaration over his life, their slander and gossip, their malignity, doesn't even face him because he says to himself, you know what, I'm a prophet. I am a prophet. I am a prophet sent by God to speak the truth of God to you. And I'm not just any prophet. I am the prophet that Moses predicted in the Old Testament when Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet, just like me. And he is the one that you must listen to. Jesus rested in the declaration of God over his life. I'm the son of God. I'm beloved by God. You see that a couple times in the gospel. There's a voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That was not just for us. That was also for Jesus to remind him that God was well pleased with him. The way that Jesus conquered codependency is by reminding himself of God's identity his God-given identity. And he knew that was the way to overcome rejection. And listen, the same thing is true of us. We conquer codependency in the exact same way. We remind ourselves of God's declaration over our lives through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, we conquer codependency through faith in Jesus and reminding ourselves that we are God's children with whom God is well pleased because of Jesus. And so what we have to do, we have to take that default formula of my self-worth, you know, comes from my performance plus your approval, and push the gospel, right, into the unevangelized parts of our souls and remind ourselves, no, no, that's not the real deal. My self-worth comes from Jesus' performance plus God's approval, We've got to take, take that fear of man formula and chuck it and push the gospel, the fact that Jesus came and lived the life that we couldn't live. He died the death we should have died. And now we have all the self-worth that we'll ever need. 
We are beloved by God, not at some future time. Right now, we are beloved children of God. God is well pleased with you. Whether you had a two-minute quiet time before church this morning, or you had a zero-minute quiet time, or a two-hour quiet time, God's love for you is fixed because of Christ. It's not based upon your performance. And and this is so counterintuitive, we have to keep pushing this message of, of the gospel into the unevangelized parts of our soul because when we fall into codependency as a Christian, we are inevitably believing that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on the cross wasn't enough to restore my dignity. We're thinking, yeah, Jesus, hey, thanks for dying here on the cross, but there's something else I need to prove. There's something more that needs to be added to your finished work. But Hebrews says this. Hebrews says, once we put our faith in Jesus, we can rest. We can rest. Where there is forgiveness of these things. And if you look at the context, what are these things he's referring to? Our sins, our failures, our shameful acts, our terrible past, our bad parenting, all those things. When there's forgiveness through the cross of our inadequacies, guess what? There is no longer any offering required for sins. There's nothing more you have to do. Through faith in the gospel, guys, I just pray, God, give us, you have to do the work this morning, God, give us an understanding that we have nothing more to prove, amen. We have to push the gospel into the unevangelized parts of our souls and realize we have nothing left to prove, because once you've put your faith in God, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, you have the approval and acceptance of the God of the universe, and the question is, what more do you need? You have everything you need in Christ. And that's what makes codependency so foolish and silly for a Christian because here's what you're doing. You're trying to steal from the creature what you've already been given in boatloads from the creator. That's what you're trying to do. You know, it's kind of like I had this recent experience where I've been trying to see the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding. You guys seen that? I was out to lunch with, uh, with Jeff Berman and Louisa Berman. In fact, Jeff, where are you at right now, man? Let's recognize Jeff for a second. Is Jeff in here? He must have stepped out. Where's, is Louisa in here? Louisa, stand up for a second. Okay, Jeff, stand up. He's probably hiding from the shadows here. Let's give Jeff a round of applause, okay? Seriously. There are people, there are people in, in every church that, that make things go, and their names never get into the bulletin. Jeff's one of those guys. He comes early. He stays late. He sets up the camera over here to do promotional videos. He does so much. And so on your way out, just, just give him a high five and tell him thank you. Because, Berman, you're the man, bro. You're the man. Seriously. Does so much. But anyway, I'm having lunch with, with the Bermans, and they're like, you've got to see my big fat Greek wedding. So for like a year, I've been trying to find that movie. And so when I go to the, to the Orange City Library over here, take my kids there usually once a week, I'm constantly there looking at their movie section, and I'm always looking for my big fat Greek wedding. And it's always checked out, always, until this week. This week, it was there, and I walked in, I was like, yeah, I got it, finally, boom. Checked it out, took it home, no joke. Two days later, I'm rearranging the cords behind my VCR, and I'm looking at our DVD collection, you know, our family's DVD collection. Guess what's staring me in the face? (laughs) Yep, my big fat Greek wedding is right there. We owned it the entire time. And then I remembered, I was like, oh, that's right, when I married Lauren, we combined DVD collections and at the time, I was like, that's lame, big fat Greek, whatever. And I kind of like despised it, and I didn't think about it a lot. And listen, we owned it the entire time. And then I felt like such a fool because here I was looking earnestly and striving for something that I already owned. 
Do you feel me? I'm on this desperate search to find this movie that's sitting on my shelf collecting dust and being ignored. And we do the same thing with the love of God in Christ. You have all the acceptance you'll ever need through the gospel. The Bible is God's love letter to you of his one-way acceptance of you. And so often, we put this away and we run to Facebook or we run to friends or gossip to feel better about that hole in us. And it's foolishness for a Christian. It's foolishness. And it's foolishness if you're not a Christian yet because put your faith in Jesus and experience the acceptance you've been longing for your entire life. I had been looking for something that I'd owned the entire time. And listen, friends, that is true of God's love towards us. We so often, we compromise our morals, we compromise our integrity, trying to steal, suck a little bit of identity from the creation when it's been given to us by the creator on the cross. And I know some people think this. I know we talk a lot about grace here. Some people think you shouldn't talk about grace so much and the love of God. Because if you do, people will go off the deep end. You'll take it too far. Friends, the Bible teaches it's the opposite. Do you know what God says about us? He says our problem is we don't think about his love enough. That's what he says in Jeremiah 2. Does a young woman forget her jewelry? No. Ain't no way she's forgetting that. Or a bride, her wedding ornaments? Don't get near a tiara on a bridal day, okay? You will get your hand chopped off. But listen, yet my people have what? What did Jesus say when he was on the earth to his disciples? He's like, listen, bros, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. What is that? They're teaching, they're legalistic teaching, because when I'm in dead, Jesus says, you're going to go right back into legalism. It's going to seem so appealing, and you're going to forget about me. And that's why I give you the Lord's Supper. Do this in remembrance of me. It's about me. It's about my work. Church is about my work. Church is about my forgiveness of your sins. It ain't about anything else. And so we come once again this morning to be reminded of God's great love for us through Christ. And if we forget that, we're vulnerable. Don't you see? Everything in your life is a gospel issue. Codependency is a gospel issue because if you don't get what you need vertically, you will go shopping for it horizontally. And you will end up using people instead of loving them. You will turn people into either obstacles or vehicles. It will happen. And God hasn't, hasn't given us other people to feel better about ourselves. He hasn't. He's given us other people to love because that's Trinitarian love. Friends, we have to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. We have to push the truth of God's love for us into the unevangelized parts of our souls and I would ask you this, if you haven't done that yet, if you have not bowed the knee to Christ, repented, which means turned away from your life of pursuing your own pleasures and turned back to Jesus, I'd ask you to do that this morning. And if you don't know what that looks like, there'll be a prayer team right after the service in the very back on the left-hand side. There'll be a group of people in there that are waiting to pray with you. And they will explain to you in even clearer terms than I can, okay, how a person is made right with God through Christ. Please stop in there and get prayer. But let's pray together now and ask God to open hearts.